The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hello, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me. Today we're going to be talking about something that often goes unmentioned, fertility. 20% of women trying to conceive a child actually use infertility services. And about 9% of males in the U.S. between the ages of 25 and 44 report that they or their partner have seen a physician for options, testing, and treatment for infertility. Embedded in these statistics are the personal challenges of many who have faced the physical and psychological stress associated with difficulty conceiving a child. You know, we live in a culture that says, just do it. And we live in a culture that says, just do it now. So it's understandable when there's any difficulty with fertility and conception, people start to blame themselves. Our goal today is to open a discussion that helps eliminate any stigma surrounding infertility and empowers women and men to learn about fertility. We are going to discuss challenges, choices, possibilities, and options that are available today that were not available years ago. We are very fortunate that our guest today is a true expert. Dr. Julie Lamb is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist. She has written over 50 peer-reviewed papers. She is the director of the Center for Fertility Preservation at Pacific Northwest Fertility. She is the president-elect of Seattle Gynecological Society And Dr. Julie Lamb is dedicated to changing the conversation surrounding fertility care and fertility options. Dr. Julie Lamb, it is a privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you, Dr. Phillips. It's my pleasure to be here. Okay. Thank you again. Let's start, Dr. Lamb, by talking about what do we mean by infertility and what are the most common causes? So infertility is defined by someone who's trying to achieve pregnancy um, and is unable to. When they're less than 35, that period of time is a year. And when they're over 35, 
um, that period is six months. So it's a little bit shorter as we get older um, that we want you to go ahead and seek care. And included in this diagnosis is people that are losing pregnancies. So even if someone's able to get pregnant but not maintain a pregnancy, um, that is included in that uh, fertility diagnosis. Hmm. Now, do you think there's a tendency to think culturally that it's usually the woman's medical problem or some issue with the female. Is that reality? Uh, that's a great question, Suzanne. Like a lot of times we don't know where the problem is, and that's why it's important to seek care. I think a lot of people assume that if they just keep trying, it's going to happen, and it's certainly out of comfort zone to go and talk about such sensitive matters with a doctor. Um, but about a third of the time, it's actually the male partner that has an abnormality that's causing some difficulty achieving pregnancy. Now, I think, um, Dr. Lamb, one of the things I've seen with people is they both want to seek help and they're afraid of what they're going to find out. So what would you say to our listeners So, some of the common difficulties both on male side and the female side that may be making conception difficult that actually could be addressed if someone sought help. Right. Yes. There, I think there's this expectation that if you come and see a fertility doctor, it's going to be expensive and that the recommendations are that we do an invasive and aggressive treatment. And that's not always, that's usually not the case. Most patients get pregnant with very simple interventions. Um, and there's some very simple testing we can do to make sure that we're not missing, missing something in the way of a pregnancy. So some of the simpler things that people are surprised by and that are fixable, um, that don't um, require a lot of intervention are like um, anatomic things, like a fibroid or a polyp in the uterus that's in the way of a pregnancy and planting, um, or someone who's just not releasing an egg every month. There's some very simple things we can do um, with ovulation induction just to get someone to ovulate on a regular basis. You certainly need to ovulate to achieve a pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Now, very often you hear that the man is sent for a semen analysis. And there are all kinds of myths about this, like I have heard people say, stop riding your bike, don't swim, don't take hot baths. So sometimes men are a bit mystified by what they're supposed to do. Are they implicated? What type of interventions help men? That's a great question. I think I hear a lot like, oh, I went, you know, I had a big party this weekend and I don't want to check my sperm this week. I want to wait until I'm farther out from that. I think men don't understand that the sperm that we test was actually created or made by their body over three months before the sample is given. Um, so a lot of times the things in the lifestyle modifications um, or the lifestyle that they lead doesn't necessarily lead to a low sperm count. So I think there's a common misconception um, that what they did recently impacts it. So getting the guy in there, checking, and having him check his sperm count, even though it's not a very comfortable situation, no one wants to have to do that. Um, but once they do that and it's normal, it's very reassuring. And if it's low or abnormal, that's when we really encourage men. Uh, we kind of talk about the things that they can do or look for risk factors that could lead to low sperm count in their lifestyle. Is it the case? The bike ride okay. and the hot tubs. Okay, so is it the case if if a three month cycle sort of um, creates this the semen? Is it is it possible that a second test might prove lower or even higher? Um, are people tested again, or is it usually pretty accurate? 
Sure, yes. So when um, a guy has a normal semen analysis, that's usually good enough information. But anytime we get an abnormal test, we never base any treatment on a single on a single semen analysis, and we'll often have him uh, recheck it in a month or two. And sometimes with that, we also do some blood work for the male partner um, to check and see if there's anything that could be causing the low count. And sometimes when we recheck it, it's normal. One of the other things that couples who are struggling often talk about is when when the woman is ovulating. And people have gotten a little bit crazy with the kits. They don't know if the kits are true, if they're not true. I wanted to ask your opinion. How accurate and is that an important um, extra sort of t- device that would help women who have very... Um, irregular menstrual cycles. Are are these kits a valuable thing, the ovulation kits? The kits are helpful in helping you time intercourse, and they're helpful when they work. So if you're not having regular periods or you're having irregular cycles, um, then it's much more difficult to interpret those kits. And I agree, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of confusion surrounding the kits. And so it's part of meeting with a fertility specialist is just learning um, how and when you're ovulating and when to time intercourse and making sure you are ovulating. Because if you're not releasing an egg and you're having irregular cycles, then those kits don't make an egg release. Um, and they can be confusing and give you false negatives or false positives. So now the other big issue that comes up um, and I want us to talk about more involved treatments like, you know, the in vitro, etc. But one other issue that comes up is the idea that, especially given by other family members, you're just under too much stress. If you would just relax, this would happen. So I want to ask you, as if I were a listener, how realistic is the belief that stress causes infertility? That's a great question, and I talk with patients every day about stress and its impact on fertility. I think it's a common misconception um, that stress causes a patient not to get pregnant, and a lot of people feel a lot of stress about trying to relax and trying to unstress. Um, The biggest reason that stress can affect fertility is it affects your access to care. So if you're feeling overwhelmed, um, then it's harder to seek treatment or seek diagnostic or just even come in and talk about what the options would be. So certainly um, moderating stress is good for all of us in every situation, fertility or no infertility. Um, We should all work on stress reduction and it helps patients do the testing, it helps patients do the treatment, but it doesn't cause it to work or not work. Great. So let's talk about at what point would a couple decide or would you even recommend to a couple that they try, and we've heard about it, but maybe we'll demystify IUI and IVF. Sure. Like what's the difference is what you're asking. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when would someone seek these or would you, when do you, at what point would you recommend these, these treatments? Yeah, so part of all of um, this process that can be overwhelming for patients is all the acronyms that we use in this field. So just starting by saying what these are. So an IUI is an intrauterine insemination. 
Um, and that's a process of washing the sperm sample from a partner um, and placing it in the uterus. Or it can also we can also do that with donor sperm. So my same-sex couples or single females often start with intrauterine insemination, and that's what an IUI is. Also, it's our least invasive um, treatments were one of them. And so patients that are uh, have been trying to get pregnant, that have an adequate sperm uh, amount and have open tubes, um, so you test the tubes by a hysterosalpingogram and you look at them and they're open, um, they can start with these simple things like an intrauterine insemination where we wash the sperm and put it up in the woman's uterus. And this process or that procedure feels kind of like a pap smear. So it's not fun, but it's not usually painful. And it's also one of the least expensive processes uh, that can occur. Um, sometimes it's even covered by insurance. So especially yeah. someone who has low sperm count or has been trying for a while and not getting pregnant, that's often a place we start. Now, is that one of the interventions that could cause multiple births? So that, it can cause multiple births only if you ovulate more than once. So the biggest risk factor for ovulating more than once is the medication we pair the intrauterine insemination or the IUI with. So things like letrozole or Clomid are often used with those to increase success rates. Occasionally, those oral medications or ovulation induction agents can cause two follicles or two two follicles to grow or two eggs to release, and that's what slightly increases the risk of twins. But instead of kind of the baseline 3%, it might be as high as 5 or 8%, but it's still pretty low. Okay, so for that particular procedure, and in that case, um, does everybody use the hormone injections to stimulate ovulation, or do some people just use um, the IUI without that? Yeah, so we, when you use it without the medications, we call it a natural cycle IUI. I um, see. Done without any medications, and that's not uncommon either. So it just depends where the fertility issue is, and if your issue is that you just don't have sperm in your family, then certainly it's reasonable to start with a natural cycle intrauterine insemination. If someone's been trying to achieve pregnancy, uh, for quite a while on their own and hasn't been successful usually and we have kind of an unexplained infertility picture usually we add the oral ovulation induction agents because the success rate of the oral medication and the IUI together is what gives us the best result. Okay. It's so accompanied by ultrasound and that tells us how many follicles are growing. So if someone's really worried about having twins which we all should be concerned. You know, our biggest priority is one healthy baby at a time. Um, but, but if that's the case, you know, we uh, can not do an insemination if there's two follicles. We can really just do the insemination if there's one follicle, if someone's really hoping to avoid a twin birth. Oh, okay. So they would almost have a choice by reason of right. just not going forward. Okay. All right. right. So it's it's <clears throat> it's not a matter that they're working backwards with now having two fertilized eggs. Is that right? Right. Right. So you can um, just mature one egg at a time if mm-hmm. when that's the goal. So someone who doesn't ovulate on a regular basis, the goal is just one ovulation a month. Um, to try to increase pregnancy rates but not give somebody a a multiple birth. So let me ask you, um, 
before we even go on to the in vitro, do most insurance companies um, back people up and provide coverage for the IUI? Well, that's a great question, and it's really insurance-dependent, and it's also state-dependent. Some um, states in the U.S., such as Massachusetts and Illinois, have insurance mandates where insurance, if you have medical insurance, they're required to cover some of these treatments. Um, In other places, um, it's offered but not required. So in Seattle, about half of our patients have fertility coverage at Pacific Northwest Fertility. Um, But it can be a lot less than that, too. So there's places in the U.S. where less than 10% of the patients have insurance coverage for this. And uh, there's places where everyone does. So it's really diverse. It's important to check with your insurance and learn about what your benefits are. Talk to your employer about getting fertility benefit. Um, One really exciting thing that's been in the news recently is infertility has been... um, determined to be a disease by the American Medical Association. So we're really hoping that uh, categorizing infertility as a disease will cause more employers and more insurances to provide medical coverage or insurance for fertility. Oh, that's great. That, that's, that's really, really great. great. Really exciting. Yeah, really great for people to hear. Now, uh, we just have about a minute at what point would a person who's trouble? Well, what's the success rate of the intrauterine insemination, the IUI? Yeah, so the success rate is really age-dependent. So a young patient has a really good chance of pregnancy, 15 to 20%. But by the time someone's 35, it's down to about 10%. And by 40, it, it's close to 5% per month. So it's really the cumulative chance of doing it several times, several months in a row that gives us the best success rate and approaches what we can get with IVF and makes IUI worthwhile in some situations. Okay. Now we're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live and we're speaking about fertility challenges, choices, and possibilities with Dr. Julie Lamb. We'll be right back. We're going to be speaking about more options, egg freezing, in vitro. Stay with us. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Can you truly be a change agent in your community? We think you can. Tune in every week for Envision with host Thomas Rosenberg. The show is all about building an inclusive and just future by connecting people with ideas. Connect with what's happening in your community, your country, and around the world as Thomas speaks with amazing guests who are fostering change and making their communities better. Envision is heard live every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you checked out Teen Wealth Radio? 
It's a show for teens, their parents, and educators. Hosted by Brandy England. Along with regular weekly contributors, Teen Wealth Radio will cover the topics that teens need to talk about. Plus, we discuss a book of the week and a movie of the week. And each show will offer a challenge to our teen listeners that they can share on our private Facebook group page. Be sure to tune in to Teen Wealth Radio. Live every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. I'm here with Dr. Julie Lamb, who is a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist and fertility specialist. And we're speaking about infertility challenges and treatment options. Uh, We talked about IUI, and now we're talking about in vitro fertilization. I want to preface this, Dr. Lamb, by saying it's my experience working with couples that they're somewhat mystified, worried about this. They're worried about it financially. They're worried about it in terms of what will the friends, family, and grandparents think. Uh, are there religious issues associated? So people tend to go into this somewhat hesitant and somewhat stressed. So I wondered if you could speak a little to what it entails and how do you help people with that stress? Those are excellent questions, Suzanne. And I talk to patients every day about these things. Um, so certainly just understanding and some of, the de- some of the stress and some of the demystifying that occurs is just explaining the process. So the more you know about the process, the less um, you're worried about, I feel like. So the more you learn, the less overwhelming the process is. Um, but certainly patients that have, you know, we, we've talked about together about patients that haven't been successful and the stress that's involved with that. So I'm happy to touch on that too. But what well, I tell my patient, oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was going to ask you, tell us, demystify for us, tell us exactly yes. what it involves. Yes. So what IVF is, it stands for in vitro fertilization. So it means fertilizing the eggs outside of the body. So women make, on, in general, one egg a month, and we know that not every egg makes a baby. Um, so if we're going to get the eggs out of a woman, we want her to grow or mature the follicles or mature the eggs inside her so that we can get more than one so we have the best chance of a successful pregnancy. And that process of growing those eggs is what IVF is. So we give a woman a hormone called FSH, which stands for follicle-stimulating hormone, and that's the hormone that grows the follicles. And your body makes that every month, um, so it doesn't have a lot of side effects. The main side effects are caused by the growth of the ovary. So you feel your ovary growing, and you feel a little bit bloated with the follicles that grow in there. Um, And the process we watch by ultrasound, so vaginal ultrasound and blood work over a two-week period, 
And when the follicles reach the size that we determine that they're mature, we go in and get them. Um, it's a lot harder to get eggs than sperm. And so we have the woman actually usually goes to sleep for about 10 minutes. And each little follicle is aspirated with a tiny little needle. But because it goes you know, through the vagina, they go to sleep for that few minutes. And we suck out the fluid, and with the fluid comes the egg, and an embryologist is in the operating room with us, and they look through the fluid and and separate out these beautiful eggs and fertilize them that day, either with partner sperm or donor sperm, and that all happens in the embryology lab. And so that's what IVF is. So and I then how, how long, then, does it take? What is the waiting period to find out if they're... Ends up a fertilized. Yeah. So you find out that day of your retrieval how many eggs were collected. You find out the next day how many were mature and how many fertilized. Mm. Um, And then they're grown in the lab for five days. And the embryo um, doesn't grow in size, but it grows in cell number. And it forms something called a blastocyst, which is a day five embryo. And those are the embryos that are either transferred into the woman's body traditionally on the the same week as the egg retrieval, but as science and medicines progressed, there's a testing option called chromosomal screening where several of the cells that become the placenta cells of the embryo um, can be tested for chromosome number, and that helps us select the best embryo for transfer. So often... Often embryos are frozen while that data is collected, and we allow the woman's body to kind of return to normal and then often transfer in the, in the woman's natural cycle, which eliminates kind of the effects or the emotional effects of all the extra hormones. Mm, I see. It's making, of- me reali- it's making me realize why in our other conversations you've said you urge people to go to very experienced medical people right. for this procedure. Right, right. It's important to see a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist. This is a technology that's always changing. It's really important um, that you do your homework and you go to someone you feel comfortable with and has an um, expert embryology facility because it's really a state-of-the-art uh, treatment. Now, what is the success rate on one cycle, Dr. Lamb? So it really is age-dependent for the female, and it certainly is, you know, when you're the one that doesn't get pregnant, it feels like 100%. So even though we have all these statistics and we talk about age and fertility and single embryo transfer, if you get pregnant, it's 100%. If you don't get pregnant, it's 0%. So it's a really hard process to talk about statistics with. Um, but the, the age-dependent statistics are maintained with chromosomal screening. So if you're you know, 37 years old and we transfer a normal, one single healthy, normal, chromosomally normal embryo, the success rate is above 60% mm. uh, per embryo. So if you get more than a single normal embryo in an IVF cycle, the cumulative success rate after several transfers is, it can be very high. But if you go through this whole process at 37 and then don't get any normal embryos to transfer, um, then it doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel like that statistic applies to you. So, what if that was the case, Dr. Lamb? What if, what if after two cycles there was no embryo that was really um, viable? What would my options be? 
Right, and that occurs more often than you would than we hope. You know, I, it's still certainly not a perfect process, and this process can get out the eggs that are available every month, and that varies a lot in between patients. So the ovarian reserve helps us predict that, and um, a woman's ovarian reserve kind of helps us determine how many eggs or how many embryos we might get. So each time we do an IVF cycle, we sit down at the end of it and with the provider and the patient and we kind of regroup what went well, what went as we expected, what didn't go well or what was unexpected. Is there anything that could be done differently um, and kind of talk about all those things. So after two cycles, certainly um, the woman's feeling, you know, both of the partners um, of the pair is feeling frustrated and and tired and it's expensive and emotionally exhausting. So really, um, we focus on treating the emotional well-being of the patient as well as their physical um, needs and their pregnancy desires. And some women um, want to go forward um, and try again and others look for other building, family building options. And there's a lot of different ways to build a family and it's just figuring out what's the right next choice for them. Whether it's one- for egg or adoption or trying again with their own eggs. Mm. I think one of the things we once spoke about is I asked you many, many years ago, and this was probably a very new technique, one couple that I knew, friends outside the office, um, I believed it was the cause of their marriage to really unravel. There was other stressors, but they were completely worn out. Now, we talked a little bit about that when we have spoken before. Who usually wants to give up? I mean, is it usually the man who wants to give up, the woman? Is it just dependent on the couple? What do you usually see? Um, That's a great question. It's very um, different. It's so individual. You know, some patients are ready to give up, even if their chance is still better, more likely to work than to not work Mm. with Mm. the treatment, even if it's a high success rate. And other patients, even if it's a 1% chance, they don't want to give up. So everyone's threshold for that is very different. And I often tell patients, if you're able to keep trying emotionally, physically, financially, um, there's usually something that will work for you. It might not be your first choice. It might not be the simplest treatment. It might not be with assisted reproductive technology. Um, But if you're able to emotionally keep trying, um, we see success. But it is, you're right, it's devastating emotionally and it can be hard on your marriage it can be hard on your sex life it can be hard on your friend relationships yes well one of the things we talked about at the break that i want to underscore is the importance of recognizing the statistics get better if you're able to do more cycles is that correct that's correct to a point (laughs) Okay. Um, we kind of, you know, coach patients about what what treatments are reasonable to continue and what decrease we eat uh, with over time. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, you don't want to do IVF for the rest of your life. And, you you know, right. if you start with simple things like IUI, it's successful. Um, but at a certain point, usually after three or four, we have a discussion about what might be more successful. It's the same now, thing with IVF. Figuring out when to move to the next treatment is a patient-physician discussion. Okay, so this sort of brings us to the question of why people are talking so much about freezing your eggs um, before you're too old uh, or freezing your eggs for different reasons. Now, I know you've written on this topic and you're sort of expert in this. Maybe we could talk about 
the whole process of freezing your eggs, why people would do it and what that means. Yes, that's, that's a great discussion that I feel really passionate about because I think in our society, uh, fertility is a sensitive subject and no one wants um, to be in a situation where they're unable to build their family in the way that they wanted to. Um, so it's a really exciting time in the field because in 2012, egg freezing became no longer experimental. Um, and so it became a viable option and some insurances started co- covering it. It became more um, less cost prohibitive for patients to do and it became a more accepted way um, as an option to help preserve fertility. So this involves a woman who, um, for whatever reason, isn't ready to have a baby. So it initially started for patients um, undergoing cancer treatment that couldn't have a baby but maybe wanted to someday and needed to get um, treatment that might harm their fertility, and we would freeze their eggs. And more recently, it's become are available for other indications. So if someone is going to school and, or doesn't have a partner and isn't ready to get pregnant or um, has another medical diagnosis that they need to have their ovaries operated on or removed, all you know, we see it all. And a lot of times it's social, like they just aren't ready or haven't met the right person. But it allows women to freeze their eggs at a, at a younger age than they're ready to use them, and it gives them a better chance of pregnancy in the future in case they're not able to achieve pregnancy um, in the future. So people think IVF is just a, a, the fix-it. You know, if you go in, you're 45 and you do IVF, it's the miracle treatment. It's going to give you a baby, but it's just so much less successful with advancing age. And really over 40, we often have to use donor egg to cause a, uh, to cause a pregnancy. So this allows women to save their eggs and be their own donor in case they're unable to achieve pregnancy in the future. So what is the process? What does it involve? So it's very similar to the IVF process of growing and maturing the follicles with the follicle-stimulating hormone uh, over a two-week process, and the eggs are retrieved um, in that same manner with a small needle transvaginally while the patient's asleep. Um, and then instead of fertilizing them and transferring them, they're frozen on the day of the egg retrieval. So it's the same process of growing and maturing the follicles, just that they're not fertilized or, or transferred back until a woman's ready to achieve pregnancy. So some women so you, might never use these saved eggs. They might go on and meet someone and have a baby, no problem. But then they're there in case they're in my office in the future having difficulty getting pregnant. So do you find that is more commonly the case? Uh, like, it, do they come back and use these? Is yeah, what yeah. And what percentage come different. back and use them? No, there's yeah. some recent studies that say, you know, that when you do it really young in your 20s, of course, you're less likely to need them. Um, but by the time someone's early to mid-30s, their egg quality is still good, um, but they have pretty um, good foresight about whether they're going to meet somebody and have babies in the next five years. So fertility really changes between 35 and 40. Um, And by 40, half of patients have difficulty getting pregnant. So this just allows women in their late 30s or early 40s, if they're having trouble, to return and use these eggs that they froze. So one of the things I know I asked you before is, are you aware of men's reaction? So if I'm a 40-year-old professional 
or someone who actually, because of medical reasons, froze my eggs when I was 32, how do partners react to someone saying, well, you know, I, I have young frozen eggs? I mean, is there is there a tendency to find this too sci-fi or do, do people embrace the option? Have you had any opportunities to observe that? Yeah. Yeah, certainly I see that every day, and it's a little bit of a litmus test on the the relationship that you have, and uh, certainly my hope is that they're supportive, and that's the majority of what I see. Occasionally, someone just doesn't understand it, and once they learn about it, um, they recognize the importance of it, and they're supportive. I haven't seen too many male partners that aren't supportive. Um, I think I've seen a couple dating relationships where the woman was going to freeze her eggs and her her current partner wasn't that supportive. Um, But for the most part, the male partner is supportive, and I've seen that be very successful. Is there a comparable freezing of sperm for men? I've heard of it with medical um, situations. Right. But are are you finding it for... Do we now know that older sperm is not as viable as a 25-year-old male sperm? So certainly, if a man's going undergoing chemotherapy or having testicular surgery um, or having even a vasectomy, they'll often freeze sperm for later use if it's needed. Um, it's less common um, to freeze it for fertility age-related reasons, but there are some things that they are seeing, um, and they're much later in age than the female counterpart. So we are seeing a slightly higher risk of autism um, in older sperm donors or, or older male partners, um, but those changes don't really increase until 60s or 70s. Um, but I do have men ask about it, and we it's very easy for them to freeze their sperm compared to freezing yeah. eggs. So it's always okay, and we have patients that come and ask to do that, and that's allowed. Um, mm-hmm. But it's not quite as dire. It's not quite as crucial as freezing eggs. We're going to take a brief break, but on our way back, I'm going to ask as if I was a potential client of yours, where is everything stored and kept? And, okay. what, and what kind of facility do I have to make sure I'm dealing with? You, We're going to take a brief break. You're listening to Psych Up Live, and we're speaking with fertility specialist, Dr. Julie Lamb. We're, stay with us. We're going to come back and take another um, few minutes to talk about how you choose the right doctor, how you choose the right facility, and options for fertility. Stay with us. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? 
It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. You count. Tune into Interrevolutionary Radio and join the spontaneous wave of people all over the planet who, like you, are changing our world from the inside out. Follow the movement. Meet guests who are shaking things up. Call in and gain insights and courage to empower your own voice. Large or small, your part counts. So join us. Co-hosted by Helen Hillix, Todd Benton, and Chris Reeves. Interrevolutionary Radio airs live every Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. I'm here speaking with fertility specialist, Dr. Julie Lamb, and I was just about to ask her, we were talking about egg freezing, um, where if I did have my eggs frozen for whatever reason, and there were many reasons, um, who keeps them, where are they stored, Uh, how do I know I'm dealing with a safe facility, how do people know actually, Dr. Lamb, who to go to and how to really, what questions should our listeners ask so they can discern these people are state-of-the-art, these people are going to let me call if I'm very worried, if I don't know what to tell people as to why I keep taking off from work, if I'm starting to feel hopeless, if I'm starting to cramp. What are the questions our, our folks can ask when they're sort of screening for who to use as a physician or a team? That's a great question, Suzanne, and I think this process is so important that you really have to find a place that you feel comfortable and you feel cared for and you feel heard, um, both by the physician and the clinic, this, this axillary staff. You have access to answer your questions. Like I think one of the biggest things you can do to deal with stress is just um, feeling um, like you had your questions answered, and as soon as they're answered, a lot of that stress can be alleviated. Um, so finding a clinic, how do you find a clinic in your area? Certainly, um, you know, in the urban areas, there are, there's choices. There's a website. We all report, all these clinics report to the Center for Disease Control. The CDC website for IVF and fertility treatment is called SART, Society for Assisted Reproductive Technology. I think the, the URL is just SART.org. Um, but certainly you can Google it and find it and tell us 
it tells success rates, it tells numbers of patients, it tells numbers, it doesn't necessarily tell um, tangibility and relationships. And some of that can be deciphered by reviews, but some of it's just going in and meeting meeting the physician and the facility and and feeling if you feel comfortable there and um, com- do you feel heard by your doctor or your questions answered. You know, um, one of the recent... One of the recent review websites, Fertility IQ, I think helps patients um, hear other patients' experiences with different clinics and different providers, but it also provides some um, good um, information or doesn't misinform patients about fertility care. It gives some good information. Mm. That site can be helpful for patients. Is that um, fertility? Is that fertilityiq.com, Dr. Lamb? I think so. Let me check. But yes, I believe so. Okay. And I guess the other place that I could go to would be the CDC, and then there's a special category for reproductive um, issues or IV. Yep, there's IV. special. Yep, and then the Society for um, Assisted Reproductive Technology is part of that CDC website that gives success rates with IVF in different clinics. Okay. Uh, you get a good feel for clinics just based on their websites and what the doctors are doing in the community to support patient care. Um, but I really think it involves a conversation, you know, coming and learning about what tests might be done and what services are provided doesn't require you to seek treatment there. You're just gathering information. I think people are overwhelmed to make that first call or those take that first step, um, but really it's not an obligation. I tell patients all the time, it's just information gathering. Just go and learn about your options so you don't have regrets later. Mm. Now, you're a board-certified reproductive endocrinologist and an infertility specialist. Are those the credentials I should be looking for if I want to interview a, a, a physician? Or, yes? yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So some patients start off with their OBGYN, um, and you know all of us reproductive endocrinologists are first OBGYNs. Um, so some OBGYNs feel comfortable doing that initial testing or even the initial treatment, and if they do, that's great. That's fine. We see a lot of good care in the Seattle community by local OBGYNs, but as soon as you have more questions or you're feeling overwhelmed, um, and it's never too early just to start by seeking out a reproductive endocrinologist, and so that special training or a special fellowship after OBGYN studying just these issues for three years and a special board certification. So I think that it's easy to have an IVF clinic and not everyone um, seeks out that fellowship trained board certified physician, but I think that's an important piece of finding someone qualified to give you advice in this area. So if I'm seeing you and you in fact help me become pregnant, I then need to find someone else to follow my pregnancy and deliver my baby? Yeah, so Is when that- we get you pregnant, we follow you through that first, early first trimester. And once the pregnancy is established and there's a heartbeat, uh, we help you find a provider that will help you with the rest of your pregnancy and deliver your baby. And a lot of patients already have that provider. Um, but if you don't, you're not on your own. I'm going to help you. I want, you know, I have a lot invested in seeing you have a successful pregnancy. And it's certainly we're all rooting for you and we'll help you find the best care available. Do I come under the category if um, if I've had IVF and there's a pregnancy, do I come into the category of a high-risk pregnancy when I'm seeking um, an OBGYN? 
Yeah, that's a great question, Suzanne. Not necessarily. So if you just need okay. ovulation reduction and you don't have any other health risks, lots of times you get pregnant and you're just a normal, healthy OB patient. Occasionally, depending on the reasons somebody's having struggling to get pregnant, we'll recommend you see a high-risk OB uh, to follow up care. Um, but that's the minority of the cases. Now, I, I remember working with someone who, I believe it was Rizal, but I think one of the things that helped her stress is that she was part of a group. So in terms of the psychological care, in your center or even online groups, are there places where people who are going through this process can go or uh, go online to uh, listen to the chats that will in some way offset the feeling of stigma or the sense of stress and blame? That's a great question. A lot of patients have a lot of shame around fertility, and it's one of my biggest passions is telling patients that it's okay, you know, it's okay to get fertility treatment and you're not alone. You know, such a sensitive issue, people don't share it. And so they don't realize when, you know, their office mate at work is suffering with the same thing or a sister or a colleague or a friend. Uh, but it's so common to need to seek fertility treatment. It's really a shame that it's there, that people feel embarrassed to share about it. Um, so I'm hoping that with the more available treatments and more technology that this will be less of the case. But quite often I have patients get support, um, psychological support from a counselor or a therapist that can help them answer those tough questions from friends and colleagues about why they're missing work or why they can't just relax and get pregnant and, and you know why they're taking so long to have a baby. And it, those things are stressful. Even just going to a baby shower for friend is stressful if you're struggling. Oh, yes. So that's, that's the most dreaded thing is the baby I shower. About 70% of my patients see a counselor in conjunction with their fertility treatment. I tell them, you know, at the end of this, hopefully we have a baby, but you have to like yourself still and you have to have a good marriage and a good sex life and all of this is affected through this infertility process. And mm-hmm. so really working on that and making a conscious effort to take care of yourself and self-nurture and relationship development is really important process of this process being successful. Mm. The whole idea of people knowing not, that they're not alone and the option of talking, as you say, to a therapist, a counselor, it would be ideal if they were, had the opportunity to actually sit with the couples, couple right. groups, you know, around right. this so because we- it, it we have a counseling, like a group session in our lobby that we host several times a month with a therapist or a counselor. I have patients nice. enjoy um, fertility yoga for the kind of the congeniality between the different people participating in it and the stories that are shared there and the relaxation and coping mechanism that yoga provides. Um, I have That's a lot great. of patients participate in Resolve and love that as a support group. There's church support groups that I will refer patients to if they're interested or want kind of a, um, a faith-based approach. So there's a lot of different options, but it does take a lot to seek it out. And, you know, we are busy and, and sad about not being fertile, and, and it makes it harder to reach out and get that support when they actually really need it. So am I correct then? One source that people could go to is Resolve and is Fertility IQ. Do, do they, in fact, list potential groups or counselors related that's to a, these? That's a great question. I know Resolve does that on their website, and that's a great resource for patients. 
Okay, uh, but... And yeah, often fertility clinics in your area will have a page, a link to resources in your community, um, and that's a good place to start. There's certainly a fair number of podcasts like this one that try to make a care more accessible to patients um, that will share resources as well. Hmm. So if, how, first of all, how would people, you, you've done some good blogs and you have a terrific site coming out of your center. How would our listeners find that? Um, for, so for our website is PacificNorthwestFertility.com, um, and they're welcome to come and get information from our site. But I encourage patients to find a provider that they feel comfortable in, with in their area, um, because the goal is to be home and <laughs> and get care close to home. Um, but a lot of clinics kind of follow follow our. Um, our thought process of getting support is a, the best way to access care and um, to, reco- you know, when you're not getting the results you want, you have to keep, pick up the pieces and keep trying, and that's easier to do when you feel supported um, by either a therapist or your community or another couple going through the same process. So the quick take-home message to our listeners, Dr. Lamb, would be? Oh, the take-home message is to not give up hope and to never be ashamed or embarrassed to ask questions or gain information or find out what your options are um, so you can make the best decision for how you want to build your family. Dr. Julie Lamb, I have to thank you for coming on our show, for the work you do with so many couples, and the um, message today that really lifts some of the stigma and really opens up the options for couples. Thank you so much for coming on. It was my pleasure. Okay. Um, I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this show and any prior show as a podcast tonight by 6 p.m. Eastern, um, and you just have to translate that depending on where you are in the country, this will be a podcast that can be accessed at any time. It'll be on my host site. It'll be in Voice America's site. It will be on the podcast app of your iPhone. It'll be on iTunes, Sketcher. So it'll be really accessible for you to pass on to others who might benefit from it. Please feel free to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Mostly, until next week, please take care. Thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week. 